History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 110, Hercules in New Wark. Last time, we covered King Alexander III of Macedon, Lord of all Asia, as he moved through the southern Levant and into Egypt, facing no resistance to speak of outside of a single siege at Gaza. Egypt surrendered outright, allowing Alexander to spend the last few months of 332 and early 331 consolidating power, reorganizing Egypt as he saw fit, and traveling around. He went to the northeast to confer with the often rebellious leaders of the Egyptian marshland, where he chose the site for his first great city, Alexandria as both a monument to his own conquests and a project that would extend imperial authority into the far western Nile Delta. He also took an extended sojourn to the Siwa Oasis, where he consulted with the oracle of the Egyptian god Amun and was proclaimed that god's own son. So now styling himself the son of the great god Zeus Amon, Alexander began the trek eastward to confront Darius III once again. We left off with the Macedonian army crossing the Euphrates River and the Persians preparing a battlefield of their choosing near the city of Arbella, a site known to history as Gaukamela. It took time to move out of Egypt and rearrange the army for the eastern campaign, and perhaps cautiously remembering the drought that plagued Cyrus the Younger's campaign through the same region, Alexander chose to march all the way across northern Mesopotamia and proceed down the Tigris side of the Fertile Crescent. So, by the time Alexander approached the battlefield, it was early autumn 331 BCE. Shortly before the battle, tragedy struck. Statera the Elder had fallen ill and collapsed. Her breathing quickly ran shallow, and she died shortly after word reached Alexander at the front of the column. The king of Macedon did his due diligence and summoned some of the Persians, or at least Iranians, in the camp. They provided information on performing a traditional Persian funeral for their former queen. In the stress and grandeur of a royal funeral, one of Statera's eunuch servants slipped out of the camp, presumably stealing a horse because he made his way south with speed, catching up to Darius, 
where this eunuch Tyrotes delivered the bad news. Darius was understandably distraught by the news, but when he collected himself, he decided to make one last attempt at ending this war diplomatically. He held out hope that if Alexander could treat his family with so much respect, that he could be made to see reason. Ten ambassadors were sent, all selected from the remaining ranks of the Achaemenid house, as well as the other six families of Darius the Great's conspirators. They went to Alexander, who in turn summoned a council of his own officers and advisors for the meeting. This time, the emissaries paid Alexander all the respect of a monarch equal to their own. They offered an even greater ransom than Darius's previous letter, this time asking to free Queen Mother Sisigambis and the young Princess Drupetis, allowing Alexander to keep Statera the Younger for an eventual marriage pact and retain Prince Ocus as a hostage, which was good because Ocus was almost certainly dead at this point. The ambassador also offered words of wisdom, deeply rooted in a Caymanid history. This is how Curtius puts it. Reflect on how much land you have left behind you and consider how much you have ahead. An oversized empire is fraught with danger because it is difficult to keep secure that which one cannot control. Can you see how ships of excessive weight are unmanageable? I rather think the reason why Darius has lost so much is that an excess of possessions invites great losses. Some things are easier to win than to protect. How much easier, indeed, our hands find grasping things than holding them. Whether or not this little speech has any basis in actual history, or is just Curtius projecting the benefit of hindsight into his writing, we can't really know. But it would have been sound and likely sincere advice from the Persian representatives. Their history was riddled with the difficulties of dominating the lands that Alexander had conquered, and sought to continue conquering. But their ancestors had built that empire over generations. Cyrus had conquered much of it, sure, but he had taken decades, and accepted many whole kingdoms' willing surrenders. Alexander had taken almost as much territory by force in just three years that Cyrus had in fourteen through a series of protracted campaigns and complex negotiations. Many of those were the most rebellious provinces in the Persian Empire. The Persian ambassadors were beseeching Alexander to end the bloodshed and consolidate his gains. They didn't think they were going to take something back right now. If there had ever been a chance that Alexander would have taken the deal... Darius made one fatal error in his proposal. The deal brought to the Macedonians in Assyria 
was ultimately the same territorial arrangement offered last time, a new border at the Euphrates. Whether he needed the wealthy province to rebuild or not, this was a terrible plan by the King of Kings. Alexander ordered the ambassadors out of the meeting tent and sat in silence for a long time, nobody wanting to speak until the Macedonian monarch had expressed his own opinion. Finally, Parmenion spoke up. The old general told his king to take the deal, consolidate their gains, and build up Macedonia for a while. Alexander spat the words back at him, saying, according to Curtius, Yeah, I too would prefer money to military glory if I were Parmenion. But as it is, I am Alexander. I am not worried about a lack of money, and I am aware that I am not a merchant, but a king. Alexander's mind was, in all reality, already made up. He had already crossed the Euphrates, and he was at the edge of still further conquest. With Darius and his main force so far north, the Persian heartland, Susa, and beyond that, all of Parsa itself, was undefended. He would not stop. He sent the emissaries packing with the message that battle was imminent. It was now October 1st, based on converting dates from Babylonian astronomical diaries which note that Alexander waited to cross the Tigris until a lunar eclipse, likely with his advisors and seers interpreting that astronomical event as a good omen for their war. So, if you're listening at the time of release, happy belated anniversary. There is a certain poetic nature to the location here as well. Over 200 years earlier, Cyrus the Great made his first foray beyond the old Median Empire when he, quote, crossed the Tigris near Arbella, according to the Babylonian Chronicle. Well, now, a new conqueror was making his first move toward Babylon from the west rather than the east, likely marching through the same ford in the river. This route is actually the subject of a surprising amount of academic debate. It is a weird road to take. Babylon, the primary target of this campaign, is on the Euphrates. Crossing the northern plain to the Tigris would mean doubling back further south and encountering several additional, potentially defended cities along the way. There are two basic interpretations of this based on the same information. In preparation for Alexander's arrival, Darius ordered his army to scour the eastern bank of the Euphrates, embracing the scorched-earth tactics hinted at in the Greek stories about Memnon of Rhodes before the Battle of the Granicus. One interpretation of this is that it was meant to weaken Alexander en route to Kunaxa, where Darius intended to recreate Artaxerxes II's victory over Cyrus the Younger by artificially creating similar drought conditions to those faced by Cyrus. 
Under that view of things, Alexander caught wind of the plan ahead of time and circumvented the Persian defenses, forcing Darius to rush to a less preferable location near Arbella. The other interpretation, as suggested by the historian Peter Green, and the one that I think makes more sense, is that this scorched earth strategy along the Euphrates was always intended to dissuade the Macedonians from taking that route. This would buy slightly more time for the Persians to prepare and secure the resources plundered from the western side of Mesopotamia for use by the Persian army as they prepared their chosen battlefield, meaning that Darius successfully lured Alexander to Gaugamela. Arbella was significantly further north than Kunaxa, which would make it an odd location for a last-minute change of plans if the army was coming from Babylon. It would also create an opportunity for redundancy if things went belly-up for the Persians. Kinaxa was immediately north of Babylon, with no significant cities blocking the path of the victorious army. Arbella, on the other hand, created the opportunity for Darius to fall back to any number of cities and form a new defensive line if the Macedonians gained the upper hand, essentially recreating the strategy used by Nabonidus 200 years earlier when Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon for Persia in the first place. To my mind, Alexander's arrival on the plain of Galgamela was the plan all along. Shout out to Claridon for supporting this episode and providing me with samples. Allergies. There are a few things that make me feel worse more frequently. There are a few times a year when the trees bloom, pollen turns everything yellow, and my sinuses just seem to stop working. I feel miserable. I can't sleep without tossing and turning every few minutes. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for my worst allergy symptoms for probably 18 years, and it's an absolute game changer. I can fall asleep and still feel like I am able to breathe. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. So, it's October 1st, 331 BCE, and two great armies are gathered on the plains, with the road to Arbella stretching into the distance. And it must have truly been a sight to behold, 
It was shaping up to be one of the largest battles ever fought up to that point in history. As always, the ancient sources report grossly exaggerated numbers for the Persian army, numbering north of half a million men. Modern estimates based on descriptions of the battlefield, the Persian camp, and realistic population estimates range anywhere from 50 to 150,000. Personally, I think 50,000 is too low given the stakes and how much time Darius had to prepare, but how much higher is hard to say given how poorly documented the population of the Eastern Empire was. Alexander had already taken the most densely populated regions, meaning there might not have been enough people left in the empire to realistically muster 150,000 soldiers at once. Most historians who do the math seem to guess between 80 and 100,000. As usual, the Macedonian side is more reliably documented, which means the ancient sources uniformly give them about 47,000 fighting men and a long tail of camp followers and supply lines stretching back to the Mediterranean. Even with all these conquests, Alexander hadn't quite turned to conscripting the victims of his Asiatic campaign just yet. There were some, but by and large, these are still Greco-Macedonian and Thracian troops. Following what should be by now a familiar script, the Macedonians split their command structure in two, with Parmenion taking command of the left flank and the main infantry phalanx in the center, as well as a block of Hatairoi cavalry to their left, with a screen of infantry and archers guarding the horsemen. Alexander thus took command of the right. First with the Hippospists, immediately to the right of the main phalanx, and then Alexander's personal cavalry unit, followed by additional horsemen and a similar component of light infantry and archers, including the so-called Old Guard of mercenaries who had been serving since Philip's time, commanded by the veteran officer Cleander. It must have been difficult for the Macedonians to even comprehend what they were looking at. By now, they were used to the usual assortment of sparabara with their tightly fitted tunics and trousers, light weapons, and towering wicker shields. Likewise, they knew the usual Persian cavalry with a quiver load of javelins in similar but more heavily armored clothes. They'd seen slight variations on heavy hoplite warfare employed by the Syrians, and some of the veteran soldiers had even seen the Scythians, dressed much like the Persians but with a wider array of hats. However, they'd probably never seen an army quite like this. The Persian left was commanded by Bessus and Keranos Histaspes, a huge block of cavalry from Bactria and their Saka allies from the Dahai Confederacy and a wide array of other tribes, along with the Arachosians, Indians, Elamites, both lowlanders known hereafter as Susians and their highland cousins, the Uxians as infantry, and Caducians, and all of this was shielded from the invaders by a row of 100 scythed chariots. Darius III took his customary position in the center, 
in the royal war chariot surrounded not just by his usual cavalry guard and the 10,000 Persian infantry, the Immortals, but the displaced Carian loyalists and Indian infantry, and even strange lumbering monsters with platforms teeming with Indian archers on their backs. For the first time in recorded history, Greeks other than Theseus were seeing war elephants. To the right of the elephants came the flank commanded by Satrap Mazaios of Babylon, composed largely of Babylonians and Assyrians, but also Parthian, Saka, Median, and Hyrcanian cavalry, as well as further Armenian and European Scythian cavalry under the command of Satrap Orontes II, all guarded by Indian charioteers. Unfortunately for the Persians, this war had taken a toll. It was difficult to supply such a huge army in the first place, and after their losses in the west, they were strapped for resources. Both sides were hesitant to start, and the elephants actually had to be pulled back to the Persian camp just as the fighting started. According to Curtius, the Persians struggled to equip their troops properly, producing new weapons and armament as quickly as possible in the run-up to Gaugamela. Cheap, quality, or quantity. You only get to choose two, and the Persians needed cheap and quantity, which certainly wasn't going to aid them in this fight. After hours of preparation, formation, seeking omens, and posturing all morning, the Battle of Galgamela commenced when the Macedonian infantry began marching forward, with the outer wings moving at a 45-degree angle to the main block as lures for the Persian cavalry. Mazias took the bait, deploying his cavalry quickly, only for Parmenion's conscript horsemen to charge forward and intercept them. With the Persian cavalry seen in action, the Macedonian army could do what they did best and engaged the Persian infantry. Meanwhile, Alexander himself went into motion, leading his Hatiroi out, not straight ahead, but all the way to the right edge of the battlefield trying to draw the Persian left-side cavalry away from the center and create an opening, exposing Darius himself. Darius had a choice to make, as Alexander got further and further away. If the Macedonian got too far, they'd be outside the area that Darius's troops had prepared and scouted, and thus far enough that they could swing around and hit the Persian rear, or even their camp. Darius made the call and ordered Bessus to pursue. The Saka charged ahead, out from behind the scythe chariots, firing arrows at speed, trying to outflank the Hatiroi and force Alexander to turn back. The Macedonians wouldn't do it, but they were forced to turn to the left and engage the Persian countercharge directly. The Macedonians were outnumbered and on the ropes as they clashed repeatedly, even calling in reserve cavalry from behind their main line. They were forced into a strategy of containment, trying to hold Bessus' forces in place by charging any attempted movement. 
wave after wave of Macedonian cavalry finally forced an opening in the Persian line when a squadron of reserve Podromoi, possibly the very last of the Macedonian reserves, arrived fresh on the field. This opening allowed the Macedonians to push into the Persian lines and force them to retreat. As the cavalry line broke up, Darius ordered the scythe chariots to rush forward, aiming directly at Alexander's personal hetairoi. The light infantry from the Macedonian right opened with a barrage of javelins and arrows to disrupt the cavalry charge, picking off the drivers and horses, causing chariots to careen into one another and greatly damaging their numbers. With the number of chariots thinned out, the Macedonian horses were able to part ranks and ride around the remaining forces. The Hippospists and cavalrymen's servants, armed with spears of their own, marched in to pick off any survivors from the crashed chariots and horsemen fallen from their saddles. While all of this was happening, Alexander himself had slowly been disseminating orders for his personal companions to slip out of formation as the reservists arrived, moving to the rear and reforming under the king's personal command. Along with the phalanx of infantry under Alexander's direct control, these forces formed a wedge, and as the Persian cavalry started to retreat, Alexander's wedge seized on the opening and charged directly at the Persian center. They smashed into the immortals, the Greek mercenaries and the Carians fighting as a phalanx, and ultimately into Darius's cavalry guard. Much like the Battle of Canaxa 70 years earlier, the Persians' desperation to protect their king led to a brutal and confusing melee as different units broke or parted under the pressure of the Macedonian advance. Of course, with Parmenion engaging the Persians on the left and Alexander leading the Macedonian right in a series of wide-ranging maneuvers, a gap opened in the Macedonian center, allowing a contingent of Persian and Indian cavalry to charge right through, making straight for the Macedonian camp, where only a small contingent of Pezhatyroi served as defenders. It was a prudent move by the Persians, attempting to rescue the royal family still being held captive, and they even made it into the camp. Yet, Queen Mother Sisigambis refused to go, either not trusting the minor officers that had penetrated the Macedonian line, or fearing for herself and her family if they tried to escape through a battlefield. Ultimately, this raid in force was forced to withdraw without the royal women when they saw their own forces beginning to retreat. Much like what happened at Issus the previous year, Darius turned the royal chariot around when Alexander got too close, taking his closest guards and fleeing from the battlefield, presumably with many of the same motivations as he had before. Once again, with the great king in flight, the rest of the Persian army followed suit, following Darius in retreat. By now, the battlefield was chaotic, and Darius was moving slowly. Alexander had the ability to pursue. He might even have caught up. But Parmenion's forces were at risk of being overwhelmed, 
almost entirely encircled by the Persian cavalry on the other side of the field. So Alexander wheeled his horses around and charged in to reinforce his left flank rather than continuing the hunt for Darius. They quickly clashed with the elite Persian cavalry in what Arian describes as the most fiercest combat in the whole battle. Ironically, once they realized that the rest of the army was retreating, the Persian cavalry that had nearly overwhelmed Parmenion tried to retreat as well, only to be pinned down by Alexander, fighting desperately to escape as they were hunted down by the Thessalian cavalry unit sent by Parmenion. With all Persian units in full retreat, headed east toward the Zagros Mountains, Galgamela fell to Alexander along with Arbella, the Persian camp, the war elephants, the royal chariot, and bow abandoned by Darius, and some 4,000 talents, or 52 tons of gold. It wasn't a flawless victory. Between 11 and 1,500 Macedonians were killed or injured, including Hephaestion, much to Alexander's personal ire. Of course, by comparison, Curtius reports 40,000 Persian killed or captured, and Diodorus reports 90,000. Neither of which is an impossible figure, but both would represent a devastating blow to the Persian force, half or more of their overall strength. But more importantly, and potentially a crucial reason for Darius choosing Arbella in the first place, the Persians had now ceded the road south to Alexander, and with it, effective control of Babylon and all of Mesopotamia. Instead of retreating south, Darius had taken the eastern road toward the mountains, heading into Media to regroup in Ecbatana. While Darius fled, Mazias raced back toward his capital in hopes of resisting Alexander, burning fields and villages as he went to slow the Macedonians down. Even as he did this, the Macedonian scouts were hot on his heels, putting out the flames as soon as they went up, plundering the supplies Mazias had attempted to burn. As they traveled south, Macedonian scouts reported a large Persian army coming up behind them. Thinking Darius had feigned his retreat, Alexander ordered the men into battle formation, only to discover that it was only around a thousand Persian stragglers coming to surrender. However, the day after that, they did intercept a Persian messenger carrying a letter from Darius, who was attempting to convince some of the subjugated Greeks to mutiny. Of course, the messenger was caught, so this did not happen. Off in Ecbatana, Darius was making it clear to his surviving satraps and officers that this war was not over. He would raise a third army from any province he could still control, and they would face Alexander again and again until either the Persian Empire was destroyed in full, or the Macedonian would accept Persian terms. Alexander declared that anyone found conspiring with the Persians would be executed as a traitor, even if only accepting an Achaemenid bribe. The Macedonians arrived at Babylon before Mazaios could do anything. The city surrendered with all the fanfare due to a triumphant conqueror, and the soldiers were under strict orders not to plunder the town, 
This was the grandest city any of them had ever seen, and quite frankly, the grandest city in the world in 331 BCE. Alexander made his intentions clear. This was to be the new capital of the great, continent-spanning Macedonian Empire. Immediately after arriving, Alexander followed in the footsteps of Cyrus the Great. Meeting with the priesthood of Marduk and preparing to undergo the traditional rites of a Babylonian king. As many great conquerors had before him, Alexander rode in procession through the main thoroughfare of Babylon from the shining blue stones of the Ishtar Gate to the Esagila, the grand temple of Bel Marduk. There he ascended the steps of the pyramid like ziggurat and entered the sanctuary to take the hands of the idol inside, now made of wood, since Xerxes had long since destroyed its golden predecessor. Any pretension to the contrary was now truly dispelled. Alexander was the lord of all Asia, and he could take his place in the lineage of empire builders stretching all the way back to Sumer and Akkad. Plutarch describes how, as Alexander returned to the palace, the priests blotted the sides of the road with a strange liquid all the way to the palace itself, and then how they touched their torches to the end of the line of fluid closest to Alexander. Suddenly, flames shot up along the trail of liquid stretching into the distance, lighting the way in the blink of an eye. Of course, this is a description of crude oil, which occasionally bubbled up to the surface of what are now the Iraqi oil fields. Industrialization was innumerable other developments away, but the ancients were aware that they had some sort of resource flowing under the earth. Unfortunately, one of Alexander's servants, a boy named Stephanos, was employed to sing for the king's entertainment and ignorantly asked to be put through a, quote, trial of the liquid, to gain a divine omen for the king by not being set alight while smothered in crude. Alexander accented, and in the least surprising twist in history, Stephanos burned to death. They stayed for over a month, recuperating, tending the wounded, dispersing the captured wealth, and reveling in the luxury of the greatest city on earth. But eventually, Alexander determined that it was time to depart. He confirmed Mazaios' satrap and allowed him to remain in control of Babylon in exchange for his surrender, with a sizable Macedonian garrison and several officers stationed in the city, as supervisors. With Babylonia settled, the army gathered outside the city in marching formation, facing northeast, back up the Tigris, and then along the Diala River, northeast into the Zagros Mountains, along the road towards Susa. Next time, Alexander invades the Persian heartland, and Darius III will be powerless to stop it. Until then... If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. 
That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com, or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.